I'm Tony Wright. It's my uh, great pleasure to welcome you all to this political quarterly annual lecture, kindly being hosted for us by the LSE. The relationship between the political quarterly and the LSE goes back a long way. Indeed, right to the foundations of the journal 80 years ago. While watching the slaughter of the First World War, a young airman named William Robson made up his mind, as he said, to devote my working life, if I survived, to studying the forces which influence the lives of men and women in society, and doing what I could towards improving their condition and clearing up the hideous mess I saw around me. He did survive and went on to become the doyen of British public administration, based for a lifetime here at the LSE. His determination to improve the world formed itself into a plan to set up a journal of progressive ideas that would, as he said, provide a bridge between the world of thought and the world of action. So he extracted money from Bernard Shaw, he roped in people like Leonard Wolfe, and set up the political quarterly. And that's why I say that it's a great pleasure for the journal and the LSE to be united again, because they do go back a very long way. Now, if any of you, like me, were here in 1968, <laughs> when this room was the epicenter of the great uprising, you may just recall that the word anarchy had been painted in big white letters all along what was that wall. What I particularly remember, though, was that it had been misspelt, <laughs> which seemed to me somehow significant. I suspect they'd have had even more trouble with Gaddafi. I was supposed not to mention him, but I think I got away with it. In my final year here, I did a course that was called Contemporary Political Thought. Contemporary meant a long time ago, but not as long ago as it might have been. It was taught by someone called Ralph Miliband. One day, he handed me back an essay that I'd done on Lenin's state and revolution with the words, the trouble with you, Wright, is that you're basically a liberal. <laughs> what he should have said was social democrat, which of course was just as bad. Tonight's lecture is about the present condition and future prospects of social democracy in the wake of the financial crisis and in the prospect of a prolonged period of retrenchment. This is contemporary political thought, and we have a milliband to take us through it. You know all about David. It's said that Tony Blair worried that he might be too left-wing. Some people in that eccentric version of democracy known as Labour's Electoral College may have thought he was not left-wing enough. The truth is that David is the outstanding social democrat of his generation 
in office and out of office. He has thought more deeply about the political tradition than anyone else in politics. If I wanted to discuss the question of how at the present bleak time a centre-left project could be developed that was intellectually coherent, politically plausible and electorally attractive, the person I would most want to have that discussion with would be David Miliband. Well, fortunately, we can. Please welcome him. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tony. That is a very, very nice uh, introduction. And I think it's worth saying that Tony's brand of politics, Tony's brand of labor politics, uh, which is humane and thoughtful and open-minded, is the sort of brand of labor politics that I've always been proud to associate myself with. And Tony was a fantastic MP for 18 years. Uh, in, he was elected in 1992. Uh, the House of Commons is poorer for his decision to uh, retire. But the fact that he wants to be part of the conversation about the future of British and European politics, I think, speaks to the sort of person uh, that he is. Uh, it's also worth saying that the school, the, the LSE, I mean, has a very important part in my family's history. Uh, my uh, mum and my dad both studied here. Uh, in fact, they met uh, here. Uh, my dad uh, taught here for uh, 20, 25 years. Um, he uh, was a student here, first of all, in the 1940s when the LSE was in Cambridge, uh, and then with, with people like Klaus Moser and uh, then completed his studies here. He actually taught, when Harold Lasky died, I think in 1950 or 1951, uh, Tony, um, my dad inherited uh, uh, Harold Lasky's course, and it was Harold Lasky who got my dad his first ever uh, teaching uh, job at Roosevelt University in Chicago. And one of the uh, nice things that you're reminded of when you come back to a school like the LSE and when you think about what academics do, is that one of my dad's students in the term that he taught at Roosevelt University in Chicago at the end of the 1940s, I think 1949, was Harold Washington, who went on to become the first black mayor of Chicago in, I think, 1984 or 1986. And uh, as I'll try and discuss tonight, the best of the school, and my dad had very mixed uh, emotions about some parts of the school's history, especially in the year of 1968. Um, the best of the school speaks to that interplay of high purpose and practical action that politics should be about. Uh, the argument of the lecture tonight, I think, speaks directly to the history of the political quarterly and of the LSE. It's that the European left is losing elections on an unprecedented scale because it has lost control of the political agenda to a newly flexible right. But it's also losing key arguments about how to nurture human values in today's, un in today's connected and competitive global village, because it has not responded to changes in economy and society. And I'll also argue that to turn things round, we need to address both the deficit in ideas and, or and organization that currently confronts the European left. All of that 
in time for you to catch the global events that will be taking place in Barcelona uh, this evening. Uh, and you are, have my absolute promise, and you can trust me because I'm a politician, you have, my absolute, uh, uh, you have my absolute promise that you will be out of here by 1945 to, uh, to catch up with Arsenal's great success that I look forward to later this evening. Um, the political quarterly, as Tony uh, implied, was founded in 1930 by people who believed that economic liberalism was not liberal without social justice. The founders of the LSE, by contrast, but also by complement, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, believed passionately that public policy could shape society for the greater good. The Webb's brand of collectivism, high-handed and centralist, as well as high-minded and egalitarian, was intended as an alternative to the challenge of Marxism on the one hand and laissez-faire individualism on the other. Very third way, if you think about it. In the interwar period, the interwar period, the reformist left seemed to be coming into its own, not just in Britain but around Europe, leading the fight against the far right in Italy and Spain, taking power in Britain, Germany, Sweden for the first time, Professor David Marquand has described this period as, quote, an Indian summer of gradualism, the last chance for men and women of compromise and reason to shape their own societies and the international community in the optimistic image of reformist social democracy, unquote. The optimistic image of reformist social democracy. That was Europe before the tragedies of the 1930s and the 1940s. Indian summer indeed. But it is a very resonant phrase and it powered the great struggles and the great victories of the post-war period. Donald Sassoon is here and has done more than anyone else to chronicle these in his history of the hundred years of socialism. Those movements achieved nothing less than the creation of the most civilized egalitarian societies in the world based on individual rights and communal services and communal responsibility. And the question I want to address today is whether that's it. Whether the full employment fair societies of the post-war period are the best that money can buy. Because it is not glad, confident mourning in European social democracy today. Quite the opposite. After a decade of extraordinary, in fact unprecedented success in the 1990s, under the banner that in Britain was called New Labour, reformist social democracy seems to have been put in check by so-called compassionate conservatism. And the question is whether it is checkmate. The right is seeking to emulate the electoral strategies of the left in the 1990s. And the left, in the last decade, has not been able to decide whether to dis disown those strategies or embrace them, when the key, in fact, is to build, build on them and learn from them. So the left is losing elections on a grand scale. The British general election, 2010, the second worst result in 80 years. Sweden, also 2010, the worst result since 1911. Germany, 2009, the worst result since the founding of the Federal Republic, with a greater loss of support than any party in the history of the country. France, 2007, the worst result since 1969. Holland, 2009, a traumatic transition from junior coalition partner to opposition. And in Italy, a yo-yo in and out of power with personal and political divisions disabling opposition to Berlusconi. 
should assure you, this is a lecture, not a horror show. Uh, <laughs> that is the worst of it that you're going to uh, get to here. But these six countries, with good claim to represent the historic heartland of European social democracy, the home of heroes from Bevan to Gramsci to Brandt to Mitterrand to pa Olaf Palma, the places where revisionism as a political credo was founded are now run by the centre-right. And you know the last time this happened in these six countries? I asked the House of Commons Library. The answer, not since the First World War has there been this kind of domination from the centre-right in these six countries. The whole era of democratic suffrage. Now, the motto of the LSE that we're proud to be in today is, quote, to know the causes of things. And that is exactly the challenge that I want to take up tonight. If you want, and I think by being here you're saying you don't, but if you want to, you can avert your eyes. You can say Spain, Portugal, Greece all have governments of the centre-left, and they do. You can say that Barack Obama and Manmohan Singh show what is possible. And in the United States and in India, they and their governments are struggling manfully to fight the obscurantism of the right. You can say the leaders in these social democratic parties that have lost have been far less popular than their parties. And it's certainly true that Gordon Brown and Mona Salin were much less popular than their parties in the recent British and Swedish general elections. But remember, leaders reflect parties as well as lead them. You can say that the right are going to make a terrible mess of their time in government because they're nowhere near as nice as they pretend and their programs are confused at best and dangerous at worst. The Chirac-Juppé government elected in 1995 in France to heal quote-unquote social fracture, quickly exacerbated social tension, and the left was back in 1997. But in my view, while all that is true, it's not enough. Just ask the social democratic parties in France, Germany, and Sweden, who have lost twice in the noughties. My view is that after we've considered all the contingent factors, all the cultural differences, after we've forsworn the option of accepting that, in fact, we're wrong, and there's nothing better in politics than is offered by the right, there is a fundamental question to be answered. Left parties are losing elections more comprehensively than ever before. They're losing from government and from opposition. They're losing in majoritarian systems and in PR systems. Just for good measure, they're losing whatever position they had on the Iraq war, and they are fragmenting at just the time that the right is uniting. Now, I don't believe this is some kind of accident or some kind of cosmic joke. There are real reasons that need to be understood if we're to move forward on any basis other than waiting for the right to run out of steam. And these reasons, in my view, are only visible if you join the dots between the six countries. There's only one place to start, which is where have the voters gone? And my answer is that if you look across the six countries, there are three groups of voters that we, my side of politics on the centre-left, are losing. All three groups have a class base and a set of values that they feel have been violated by the centre-left. First, centre-left parties are losing working-class voters to the far right and to the far left. Just look at the second place for the anti-Islamic party, uh, the anti-Islamic party for freedom in Holland. There are two related reasons in which interests and culture are interwoven that explain their support. 
voters find immigration to be a very big issue on which the centre-left is suspect at best and guilty at worst. And they find that their jobs are the first to go in the new economy. That's why it's identity and interest together. So while the Front National started in France in the 1980s as a bigger problem for the right, they and their sister parties around Europe are now a bigger problem for the left. And in some PR systems like Germany, there is a double squeeze. A squeeze on voters from the right, but also a squeeze from the left. This splintering and the coalition politics it invites, the so-called plural left in France, red-green left in Sweden, is an electoral problem in itself for social democratic parties. But it also has a ripple effect on a second group of voters. Centre-left parties are losing middle-income, swing voters, often young parents, in part because of the coalitions with the left and with the Greens. Just look at Sweden, the heartland of social democracy. Only one in five Stockholm residents voted for the Social Democrats. The figure for those in work in Stockholm, biggest city in Sweden, is nearly one in ten, 13%. Only half of trade unionists voted for the Social Democrats in Sweden. And a third of those voters who turned their backs on the Social Democrats did so, they say, because of their alliance with the left party. Now, the primary reason for this is tax and spending. These voters have a decent lifestyle, a good lifestyle, and they don't want to lose it. They certainly don't want to trade it in for more generous welfare systems. In Britain, median wages stagnated after the dot-com crash. In other words, well before the financial crisis. And this is the squeezed middle whose position Ed has effectively highlighted in the last few months. Centre-left parties are, though, in addition, losing a third group of voters. Often middle class, but often young voters who feel turned off the compromises of power. They have no truck with the right, but they want a distinct alternative to the established parties. And those of us who've been in government have to recognise this group as well. In Britain, the Green and Lib Dem votes are some signal of this rejection. In Germany, the Greens are actually doing really well in the national opinion polls as the centre-right government go down, uh, although the Social Democrats did quite well in a recent state election in Hamburg. So keep in mind those three groups of voters. And if that's the electoral arithmetic, there's then a second immediate and obvious question. Why have these voters left, left of centre parties? Remember that in the 1990s, the quote-unquote optimistic image of reformist social democracy was sweeping the board. 13 of 15 EU governments came from the centre-left in 1999. Across Europe, reformed centre-left parties built a narrative of fair but flexible labour markets, social investment in education, renewal of welfare, and strong internationalism. It's important to say the parties were not all the same. They weren't clones of New Labour or clones of anybody else. Britain's experience in the rebound from Thatcherism was different from Sweden. But even in France, and I say even in France for a particular reason, I once said to uh, Jacques Delors, why didn't, you, why didn't you run for the presidency of France? And uh, his answer was revealing. He said, well, there are only three social democrats in France. In other words, I would never, he was saying, I'd never get selected by the Socialist Party in France to be the candidate of the Socialist Party in France. But even in France, where there were only three social democrats, 
Lionel Jospin made the centerpiece of his politics the commitment to, quote, a market economy, not a market society. And what came in its wake across Europe? Social change, women's rights, gay rights, proceeded apace. Social investment was increased. Welfare-to-work programs seemed to work, and poverty was alleviated, even if inequality was a very, very tough nut to crack. And Europe, as a political project, provided on the continent a binding economic glue. Revisionist social democratic parties dominated the post-Cold War era. It dominated the center ground of politics, and it led to significant social reform. And we have to clarify what's gone wrong, what's changed. I think there are three things, economics, politics, and ideas. I just want to go through them. Economics first. After the fall of the Soviet Union and its associated Red Scares, and before the rise of China, India, and Brazil had really taken off, growth in Europe seemed secure. It may seem ridiculous to say this now. Some of you of younger vintage may even be surprised, but some governments even talked about the end of boom and bust. <laughs> now, Tony Crossland's dream that in time, in a time of full employment, we could focus on equal opportunity seemed to be coming into focus. But the policies and politics that worked in the nice decade of the 1990s clearly aren't up to the job in the grim decade that we're now living through. Mervyn King, the governor of the Bank of England, coined the idea of the nice decade, non-inflationary, continuous expansion. Instead of a nice decade, we now face a grim decade, growth restricted and inflationary misery. You could actually, if you make it Grimm's fairy tales, it's growth restricted and inflationary misery for many. Uh, but instead of that nice decade, there is a grim economic situation facing people. Now, it's true that out of the 1930s came the New Deal and the Keynesian welfare state. They also came out of a world war. But Professor Andrew Gamble, who's here tonight, has explained that recessions rarely bring short-term political benefit to the left. Just look at the 30s, the 70s, or the current period. It's ironic, but also pretty indicative, that the last best hope for the French left to win its first election in four is to get the managing director of the IMF to come and give them economic credibility in a presidential election. Politics in Europe is not determined by economics, but it is shaped by it. And in the face of severe global competition, the crunch on growth and on the distribution of its rewards has consequences. Politics is harsher on welfare and wages, on tax and spending, and on immigration, to the benefit of the right. And the increased budget deficits, the symptom of the expansionary budgetary antidote to slump, the necessary symptom of the antidote to slump, has provided a new and simple rationale for the centre-right to cut the deficit. So economics is important. But I think it would be foolish not to recognize a second and decisive factor in the recent losses of the center-left, and that is the electoral detoxification of the right. After its successive beatings from Clinton, Blair, Pershon, Koch, Prodi, Schroeder, the right regrouped. George Bush, actually, showed how to win, kind of. <laughs> win without necessarily getting more votes. Uh, but he showed how to win, kind of, when he ran as a compassionate conservative, so-called. 
He ran against the Republican East Coast establishment. He championed education and even progressive immigration reform in the US. In Europe, parties of the right realized they'd been pushed off the center ground. And they didn't stand still, they responded. Where once they seemed completely antediluvian on social issues, they embraced a new world of equal gay and women's rights. Where they seemed in hock to the rich, they upped the rhetoric against the unacceptable faces of capitalism. It wasn't President Hu of China who told the Davos meeting this year that, quote, globalization gave rise to a world in which everything was given to financial capital and almost nothing to labor, in which those who lived on unearned income left the workers far behind. That was not President Hu, that was President Sarkozy of France. And where they seemed out of touch, the right, with the modern world, as in the UK, they went green to try and show they were in touch. Where they seemed plain antipathetic to the national character, as in Sweden, they accommodated to the center ground. Swedish conservatives went from a 15% share of the vote in 2002 to becoming a twice-election winning alliance of the center-right in 2006 and 2010. In other words, they triangulated back against the reformed left. Their slogan was not old right or new left, but new right. And the left has been unsure whether to take the right's shift as a compliment or as proof that in fact we went wrong in the 1990s. And this plays out in the battle of ideas. Since the 1920s, if you go back through the history that Tony Wright mentioned, there have been three constants in every successful social democratic program. Greater protection against the dangers of life, health, employment, unemployment benefit. Greater protection from the dangers of life, more power over your own life, and stronger communities in which to live your life. All three promises have come under unbearable strain in the last decade under the pressure of economic and social change. First, the argument about how to protect people from the risks of, associated with the global economy. The reformist left argument of the 1990s was, in Lionel Jospin's phrase, to manage globalization, not to fight it. Central to that was an active welfare state. The old welfare state offered a residual safety net. The new welfare state of education and training would offer a trampoline to help people move up. But it's not been a trampoline. The downward escalator that makes people fear for their children's economic future has been stronger than the measures to promote social mobility. In fact, welfare is seen as not tough enough by those who see idleness in, be in benefit recipients and not empowering enough for those who are on the receiving end. What's the consequence? That the fairness argument has actually been turned against the left. And this has been exacerbated by the shift in the tax base that Peter Kellner has highlighted. Two-thirds of the British electorate in the 1950s and 1960s paid little or no tax at all. No income tax. That is no longer the case. The employment structure has changed and spending has massively increased with all sorts of beneficial consequences for our society. But for those voters, social democracy in the form of health, education and welfare benefits has gone, in Peter's phrase, from being an unambiguous blessing to a contingent one. Contingent on the quality of what is offered and the cost of it. Secondly, the second argument is about how to give people more control over their own lives. Historically, it was the market which treated people as commodities to be bought and sold, and which left people feeling defenseless and stranded. The role of the state was to empower people, first of all through the vote, then through rights, and then through services. But the argument has been turned. The very success of social democrats 
in arguing for an extended role for government means that the understanding that people had of the market, that it was a good servant but a bad master, is now applied to government, not to the market. That's the explanation that I have for how a market failure like the financial crisis gets turned against the left and is seen as a crisis of regulation, not a crisis of market failure. The association of the left with the state has become a stick with which it is beaten. And the very expansion of the role of government to meet popular demand has made it more vulnerable to the charge that the state is a powerful ogre, not a flimsy line of defence. And the tragedy in a country like Britain after 13 years of Labour government is that it takes a Tory government to remind people why it was worth having a Labour government in the first place. The electoral consequence, though, is that thus far in the 21st century, the investment argument has been turned against the left as well. And there is thirdly the argument about how to build and foster a modern sense of belonging. This is not only about immigration or only about poorer voters, but it is significantly about both. The academic Jonathan Rutherford has written about a story of, quote, dispossession in the shadow of the bright lights of consumer culture and the glamour of celebrity and money. The cosmopolitanism of diversity and individual rights is perceived as threatening and alien in some quarters. He cites the English Defence League, a self-styled militia, street militia, ready to fight the civilizational threat of Islam as a symptom of cultural dislocations and of economic crisis. The right have got very few answers on immigration, as the current UK government are showing, with promises that cannot be met except through perverse decisions on questions like visas for foreign students. But the left is torn between a commitment to individual human rights for all people, whatever their nationality, and a recognition that communities depend on deep roots and long standing. And so the consequence is that what should be our natural ground, that of community, is one where in fact we're on the back foot. I really would ask each and every one of the 400 people in this room to read the Searchlight report that was published last week on attitudes in Britain. Searchlight is the organization that has led the anti-fascist movement in Britain over the last 30 years. It's a really, really important report because what it, it, what it shows is the real danger of assuming a natural, a natural quote-unquote, centre-left majority when issues of values, when values issues cut across political divides in a fundamental way. It really breaks down the easy stereotypes. So, we know who we've lost, or at least I've tried to argue who we've lost. And we've some idea of why we've lost them. The question is, what next? And that's the last part of my lecture tonight. One conclusion in the debates that are going on is that only by reversing out of the third way cul-de-sac can the centre-left find avenues for advance. Now, it's certainly true that the centre-left governments of the 1990s were good at helping the poorest benefit from economic expansion, not good enough at figuring out how to spur that expansion. They were good at preaching responsibility for those on welfare, not good enough at demanding responsibility from those at the top of society. They were good, we were good, at the analysis of an enabling state, but not good enough at bringing it about. Good at the rhetoric of public sector reform, not good enough at delineating how both planning and markets are necessary for an effective public sector. And they, we, were good at building electoral machines, not good enough at building movements of social change that had real endurance. But in response to the suggestion that the best thing we can do is reverse out of the third-way cul-de-sac, 
I give you my strategic view. It's essentially the opposite of that conclusion. The revisionism that was entailed in the renewal of left parties in the 1990s was essential for them to become viable parties of government in the first place. It is not the new doctrines of the 1990s that made these parties unviable. In fact, these doctrines staved off unviability for parties that had become very good at losing elections in the 1970s and 80s. The good things about progressive politics in the 1990s, radicalism when it came to doctrine, new thinking about national and international reform, a finely tuned eye and ear for social and technological change, decisive engagement with people's fears and emotions on difficult issues like crime and security, a readiness to pursue social justice in new ways, a strong sense of international responsibility, a record that did leave the countries they governed not just fairer, but also better prepared for the modern world, those are the basis for winning again. In other words, only a post-New Labour brand of European social democracy, building on success, not a pre-New Labour stance, can address the weaknesses that were left and exist today. Now, it's important to say that the route map to victory is far from straightforward. It requires reconnection with disenchanted electorates through new ideas, new mechanisms of organization, and renewed political strategies that are appropriate in each country. My starting point is to go back to a text written after an even more crushing defeat for the British Labour Party in 1931. Crushing because we'd split in half before we were defeated. And it's a text that was written by R.H. Uh, Tawney, who I think was a professor at this uh, school. He said after 1931 that Labour needed, quote, a common view of the life proper to human beings. A common view of the life proper to human beings. That is the place to make emotional contact with people and the raw fears and ambitions that motivate them. In other words, you start with an ethic, not with a policy. An ethic which informs the most basic questions that people want to see addressed about work, family, opportunity, responsibility. And then you apply that ethic to the great questions of the day. And they are great questions today because we have more resources in which to address them as well as bigger challenges to face. What are those questions? How to build a moral economy? Our vision, those of us who are on the centre-left, is not just about how much money is made, it's about how money is made. We're not apologists for globalisation, we're reformers. And when left-of-centre parties are able to fight elections as private sector reformers, in the name of efficiency as well as fairness, they win. When they do so, and when they make government an ally in wealth creation and a defence against corporate abuse of power, they turn the antipathy of the right to government on its head. For example, the privatised utilities in Britain, including rail, are a big part of our economy. But in truth, in government, we never satisfactorily addressed their functioning. We now have a responsibility to think about how they should be serving the British economy. How to build a decent community. Our vision is not limited to state and market. When we fight elections as public sector innovators, as well as private sector reformers, we live out our most basic insight, that we're socialists, not statists. We don't create virtuous people by bureaucratic methods. And we won't expose the flaws of the big society through bigger government, but through a better recipe for the good society. And there is a different dimension to the days when Tawney was writing. 
and that is how to make globalization sustainable. The centre-left can't afford to look like suckers, but we Europeans have pioneered a different view of how to share sovereignty in the modern world than the Americans or the Chinese. I call it responsible sovereignty. Yes, the nation-state is the foundation of legitimacy and identity, but the assertion of national sovereignty is not enough in an interdependent world where problems of crime, economy, health, security have international as well as national dimensions. The challenge is a really difficult one, is to develop a distinctive centre-left vision for European policy. In this country, and actually in most European countries, European policy is about how much are you for or against the European Union. In fact, it must be our job to think through how social democrats bring our politics to the European level. The perspectives and budgets of the European Union on internal as well as foreign policy owe far too much to the 1960s and the 1980s. The rights response, fiscal retrenchment, offers very little. And we need to forge an opportunity to be internationalists of a hard-headed and serious kind, or our policy solutions will have no traction at all. I just want to end on the following point, which is how does renewal happen? What's the process of politics? Because it's important, and I've learned quite a lot about this in the last few years. Eight decades ago, Tawney identified the perils of seeing government as a gigantic problem solver. Quote, really listen to this. This is what he said about the Labour government of 29 to 31. When it ought to have called people to a long and arduous struggle, it too often did the opposite. It courted them with the hope of cheaply won benefits. It demanded too little and offered too much. It was in 1929 to 31. Now this is fundamental because the way we express our political soul in the way we do politics is as much about our is, the way we express our political soul in the way we do politics is as important as our policies and our programs. Processes that are top down produce solutions that are top down and we need a different mindset. One of the things that I'm spending my time on at the moment is something called the Movement for Change, a leadership academy for community organisers in Britain. It's a new way of rebuilding the labour movement, rebuilding social capital in communities from the bottom up. It's starting small with just a few staff but with a very big idea, to train 10,000 people before the next election in the skills necessary to use power locally. These are going to be the people who think through how to make welfare work, how to build private sector capacity how to make the public sector a real engine of partnership and change. Above all, they will help build confidence in communities to be players and not just spectators in the dramas of life. And we're living through a period when across the Middle East and North Africa, an incredible generation of people are showing what it means to be players and not just spectators in the dramas of life. And frankly, if they can use the technology of an open and connected world to change their world, then we should be able to change ours as well. Because if you think about it, this period, the 2010s, should be a time when the reformist left is actually coming into its own. The realities of an interdependent world speak to the deepest traditions of progressive politics. The rationale of the centre-left is really important. It is not 
that we are forced to share the world with each other. It's that by sharing the world, we create rather than divide. It's a fundamental moral point. Because this is a world of shared risk, from wages to avian flu to terrorism. It's a world of shared identities, a growing global consciousness of what it means to be human. How else can you explain how the self-immolation of a fruit seller in Tunisia sparks a crisis of legitimacy right across the Arab world? And it's increasingly a world with increasing resources for shared action, involving government, but not, not, not restricted to government. And that is what we were founded to create, because, as the new Clause 4 says, together we achieve more than we can alone. Now we need to do it in new ways, and that should inspire us, not depress us. Because although the right have occupied the terrain of economic competence, it is far from clear, to put it at its most diplomatic, that they have any answers at all to the fundamental questions of how Europe is going to pay its way in the world. Though they have colonized the politics of community, they are fatally fractured between liberals and libertarians on the one hand, between hugger hoodie and hang em and flog em on the other hand. They have neutralized the left through compassionate conservatism, but they are fatally broken over the relationship between social concern on the one hand and austerity on the other, which in its practical consequences means the opposite of social concern. So there's a lot to fight for and a lot worth fighting for. Because losing elections is not just one of those things. It's damaging for the people we represent, the countries we inhabit, and I would argue for the world we share. Above all, it's not inevitable. That is the real lesson of the last decade, and that is the real promise of the optimistic image of reformist social democracy. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, David, for that, uh, and thank you too for leaving us uh, best part of half an hour for questions and uh, discussion. Uh, you can tell I'm at the LSE because I've got a note on the desk here which says "Guide to Chairing Public Meetings in the Event of Disorder." <laughs> the, the, the first item says, "Please note that unless you are being physically threatened, it's important that you keep control of the microphone." <laughs> and goes on to give much other useful advice of the same kind, none of which will be necessary. But if, if we could have short, crisp points, uh, don't, don't want speeches, please, because we haven't got, haven't got time. I'll ask David to come in after two or three together with responses. So who, and there's a roving microphone. Who wants to start? Yeah. Yes, of course. Good evening. Um, Mr. Bellman, there has been accusations that the composition of the UK government is too heavily skewed towards public school educated politicians. Um, do you think it's right for the government to act upon this in any way? And if so, how would you feel is best to act upon this? Thanks. I'll just take two or three more. Yep. Um, by saying that uh, basically New Labour was neutralised by compassionate conservatism, aren't you in the danger of being seen as shelving your own responsibility, that uh, New Labour wasn't in fact enough of a rebound from Thatcherism, uh, that your ethics certainly got blurred 
perhaps no more clearly um, than in uh, perhaps certain leading members' dealings with Libya and other countries like that. Where is the ethic in your foreign policy? Isn't, you, isn't it that you have got to detoxify your brand before you can even go any further? Thanks. A couple more, yep. Just wait for the, um, wait for the mic, sorry. Was that ministers would often talk, but what was executed in practice wasn't what they were promising. And surely that is what turned off so many voters against the Labour Party. You had good ideas, but they weren't carried through. Okay, just here, I've not forgotten the balcony. Yes. Yes. Yeah, my question is about uh, the European part, because you were talking about the working class, uh, the, the way the left here, the left is losing the, waiting, uh, the, the working class electorate, but they are, like most of them, see Europe as a threat as well. So this goes against the whole internationalist basis of the social democracy. Okay, thanks. Do you want to go up there? Yeah. Um, well, on... Um, <laughs> It was uh, Anaran Bev. Where's the lady who asked about? Yeah, uh, Anaran Bevan said, "Look, it doesn't." As well as saying that the Tories were lower than vermin, he said that uh, um, it doesn't matter where you come from; it's where you're going that counts. And my real critique of the government is not where they um, their parents chose to send them to school, but what they're doing to the country. Um, but you're right. There, there's a generic problem with politics. I mean, the uh, within the Labour Party as well. That um, it's not just. Um, women and ethnic minorities who are relatively underrepresented. Actually, the class structure of Britain is relatively underrepresented. We don't have the public-private school issue that exists in the uh, Tory party. I mean, I think that um, there are many reasons to try and replace the Tory government with the Labour government, and one of them will be the beneficial consequences for the makeup of the uh, cabinet uh, as regards its origins. I think that there's a deeper point you make, though, which is that the sort of Berlin Wall between public and private sector in education is a big issue. Um, I mean, I grew up in the 70s uh, and early 80s. And I, actually, if I reflect on it, the truth is that what my parents believed was that if you were from a middle-class background, the chances are things would, work, you'd be able to think things would work out for you. It was a time where only, when I went to university in 1984, 12% of the British population went to university. It's a much more competitive environment now. I mean, that's actually a good thing. In many ways, it means we're a more open society. Not that you glorify competition in and of itself, but we're a more open society. But it means that there is more effort to preserve privilege. That's why it's been so hard to shift social mobility uh, uh, indicators. Um, and the public-private divide in education is an unusual one in this country compared to other uh, countries. It's unusual depth and breadth. And some of the things that have been done to not just improve the state sector of education, but to build partnerships and actually bring some private schools into the state sector are good. But there's still some pretty big thinking on, on that. Need I'm, one of the things I'm doing is teaching at my old comprehensive. I was there this morning, teaching a class on uh, the powers of the prime minister and cabinet government. And uh, <laughs> the last two prime ministers compared. The uh, um, now. Uh, uh, I mean, it's interesting to think about those 14 students doing AS level, and then uh, I'm going to help them through to, to A level. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not teaching the whole course at all. I'm <laughs> teaching one, one, uh, one class a fortnight to them. But it's interesting the amount of emphasis that's being put in my old school on networking those youngsters into the universities that uh, decision-making processes. Because the truth is, 
a lot of their parents, in most cases, their parents didn't go to university, and they don't really, it's hard to know where to start when you're looking at the obstacle course to get into university, and I think that's a big thing that we've got to do. On, um, I mean, the, the first thing I say is, remember, I was described to the gentleman who asked about, isn't it all our own fault? I mean, the, uh, the trends I'm referring to aren't just about this country. They're about six European countries. And in a way, if it was as easy as saying, look, if we hadn't invaded Iraq, we'd still be winning elections, that would be comforting, but I don't think it's true. I think there are deeper things uh, going on. And that's why I'd say, look, well, of course we should be self-critical. And some of the things that I said in my lecture about you know, preaching responsibility and practicing at the top as well as uh, the bottom of society, about being more confident, about the need to reform the private sector as well as the public sector, I think speak to some of those issues. Um, and um, I mean, if we, get, if we get another question on foreign policy, I'm very happy to give a, longer, a long answer on, on that as well. Um, on, um, I think you, that's a really important point the gentleman made. He said, look, you didn't implement what you, the implement, there was an implementation gap. I tell you, I have a slightly different perspective on it, which is that we, in the end, made a lot of difference in a lot of areas, rather than making spectacular difference in a few areas. If you think about the constitutional reforms, we went halfway, really, to reforming the Constitution of Britain. Maybe a third of the way, depending on your point of view. On education, we did really a lot up to age 14, not much beyond that. Um, on health, I would actually say we made qualitative change. In the health service, in 1997, the debate was, can we have a tax-funded health service? I honestly believe that's the one area where you can say 10 years, 13 years, of sustained engagement, investment, and reform really did transform the health service. But in too many other areas, we did little bits of fiddling rather than saying, right, we're really going to make a difference in that. And I think we spread ourselves too thin, and that maybe led to the implementation gap that you referred to. Um, a really important question at the top, and I didn't get a chance to, to develop this. Remember the three groups of voters I said we'd lost? Working class voters, sort of uh, middle-income swing voters, and sort of people turned off the compromises of power. The real difficulty, and I didn't make this explicit, it was implicit in what I said, is that some of the things that might appeal to one group won't appeal to the other group. That's why it's a dilemma, really. Now, I think that if we are credible as people who can build a moral economy and a good society, you actually square the circle. But you're absolutely right to say that, that it pulls in different directions. I'd say one other thing, though. It's important that we don't stereotype what working class people want. And those, those were the group that you, you identified. I think. The, it's very important to say some of the toughest ca uh, conversations that any Labour candidate would have on the doorstep is not about why welfare payments aren't higher, but why the system isn't tougher on people who are not working. The idea that reform of the welfare state to make it an active welfare state is about getting people into work, it's about responsibilities as well as rights, that is not an unpopular thing in my constituency of South Shields. I promise you, it's a very, very popular thing because they're, sitting next door, they're living next door to the people who they think are not pulling their weight. Okay. Thanks very much. Let's have another round. Yeah. Yes, in the middle. Just going back to one of the, the uh, issues you highlighted of uh, certain parts of the electorate not being able to make the compromises and uh, those people being turned to sort of single issue parties or whatever. You know, eventually that seems to sort itself out by, you know, in Ireland you just saw the Green Party just completely wiped out after one term of government and you can see the collapse in the Lib Dem support here. But uh, you didn't seem to analyse uh, wh what you can do in the meantime to, to stop people going to those extremes and how do you engage the electorate into making those compromises. Thanks for that. Uh, on the front here. 
front row of the balcony, middle balcony. Uh, my question is more as an international student. Um, in light of the most stringent immigration policies that are coming into effect, what do you see as the effect on institutions such as this one, where a lot of the human capital actually comes from the overseas? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you didn't mention much about immigration, David, as a problem in European social democracy. If you look at Italy, why did the left lose the last Italian election? Many Italians would say the biggest reason was the right was tougher on immigration. The same in France, Germany, Sweden, this country, many others. What, what can and should the left say about immigration? And linking that to the EU, because the EU is often blamed for enabling more immigration. How can we stop that turning people against the EU? So I'll just take one more. Is there, yes? Yes. Um, just... just Pause for a second. There we go. Thank you for really bringing a refreshing and necessary look at what I think the Labour Party's got to start thinking about now. Um, would you agree that uh, the LSE itself has forgotten that its full title is the London School of Economics and Political Science? <laughs> and shouldn't we be doing something about it here and make LSE a place? from which your sort of thinking and ideas can start re-emerging again? Well, it would be very comforting. If it was all the LSE's fault, I would be very... That would... That would uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, my own view, actually, is that the LSE has had a sort of extraordinary period of growth and development and dynamism over the last ten years. I mean, I really say that to people, notwithstanding all the current debates and discussions and inquiries... Um, Look, don't neglect what's happened to the LSE over the last 15 years. I mean, it's been turned into a global institution of high-caliber intellectual thought. I mean, it's really worth uh, saying that. And um, Tony referred to the, to the sort of halcyon days of the 60s when international students came from around the world to um, uh, attend my dad's classes as much as anyone else's. Um, I mean, the, the, the LSE is a sort of example of what it means to be a global hub today. And I think that... Uh, it's important that you don't allow the, the, the short-term inquiry that's going on on this Libya issue to sort of occlude the extraordinary institution that's been created here by Tony Giddens and uh, Howard Davis and the governors and all of that. I think it's really, really important. Um, the LSE, though, wasn't, wasn't set up with the explicit purpose of helping the left win elections. I mean, that was a sort of uh, sotto voce, maybe, uh, part of it. And remember, one of the things that I'm most proud of about my dad, I'm mean, proud of him for all sorts of reasons, but he was a brilliant teacher of right-wing politics, even though he massively violently disagreed with it. I mean, it's really he, he um, his inaugural lecture at Leeds when he went there to become professor of politics in 1973, was about teaching po was called Teaching Politics in an Age of Crisis. It's a remarkable, it's a real it's a fantastic lecture. And one of the parts of it is about why and how, as a Marxist, did he teach Burke, you know, right-wing politics from Burke onwards, really? And his, his, one of the things that um, I found most remarkable, when I first started working at the IPPR in the 1990s, um, I was invited to a lunch at the Institute of Economic Affairs and, um, by Keith Joseph. It must have been, I don't know, Keith Joseph, I think, passed away in, I don't know, 94 or 96, maybe. But so it must have been 90, 92, maybe. 
Oh no, actually even earlier. It might have been that was I started the IPPR in 1989, and so it might have been earlier than that. And um, Keith Joseph invites. So I, you know, you don't. I thought that'd be interesting. And I was put there, so I sat up, and he, and he said, "I want you to know that um, I went to attend." He was the Leeds MP, Keith Joseph. He said, "I attended some of your dad's lectures at the LSE. Um, I thought that they were fantastic, even though I disagreed with every word of them." And uh, you know, that's important because that's the spirit of academic openness and inquiry that I think is an institution like this should, should have. And remember the Oakshots and the, there are great figures of the right who've come out of here, Hayek, as well as uh, figures on the centre-left. Um, let me just deal with the immigration. I mean, I think, Charles, if you, go, if you do a word search on the 4,236 words in my speech, they, their immigration appears quite a lot. Um, now, it's, it, it's, a real, it's a real issue and it needs to be thought through as it interweaves issues of identity and economics. I think that's the first thing that I would say. Secondly, <coughs> excuse me, um, the lady who said, immigration makes our institutions and our countries massively worth, more worth living in, massively richer in the most broadest sense. I agree, I subscribe to entirely. If you've come from abroad, I would say thank you for coming to the UK to study here, and that is what this country should be about, because Across centuries, this country has benefited from people coming here. I mean, I should know that, since I'm the first person in my family to be born in this country. Um, I've also got letters from Harold Lasky, when he was chairman of the Labour Party, to the Home Secretary in the 1945 Labour government, asking that my grandfather be given a right to come back to live in this country, an immigration application for my grandfather. and. The letters back from Tutor Reid, who was the Home Secretary in the 1945 government, say, I'm sorry, we can't let him in because we haven't got enough room. <laughs> so I know both sides of this. And just to really uh, make the story amazing, Tutor Reid was my predecessor but three as the MP for South Shields. <laughs> right, so there are, there's always going to have to be a managed immigration system. Um, and one of the things that's difficult is that in the world of the European Union, of course, we have full freedom of movement of people amongst the 27. And I think one of the really tricky things that we're going to have to think about is that a lot of the complaint about immigration and wages is not about immigration from outside the EU, it's about movement from within the EU, which speaks to the degree of economic uh, convergence that exists between different states of the EU. So I think there's an EU, non-EU point. I think, though, what the current government are doing shows you what happens when rhetoric takes the place of thought in the development of policy. Was actually, for a country like Britain that needs to pay its way in the world, higher education is going to be one of the great things about this country. And now we're talking about restricting the number of foreign students coming here, which is completely crazy. I mean, of course they've got to be coming here to do proper courses, of course it's got to be properly regulated, etc., etc. But uh, we don't want to end up cutting ourselves off from uh, the rest of the world. I, I would feel that quite strongly. And, for, and part of the left have got to navigate this and the most important thing I would say as part of political strategy is if you look evasive, you've had it. Actually, if you're ready to talk about it, you're in the game and you can find your way through it. It's if you look like you don't want to talk about it that you really are inviting uh, trouble. Just about how do you engage the electorate. I think, well, where's the person who asked about that? Yeah. Um, I think that's a lot about the way we do politics, especially in a country where there's such concentration of power. Um, one of the things that we've got to try and say to people is that and you're right, the Lib Dems are discovering this in spades, is that politics has, doesn't, has got to take place in a way that engages people 
through the sort of dialogue that you were talking about. I think some of the movement for change stuff that we're doing at the moment is part of that. I don't think it's all of that. There'll always be some people who in the end say, look, you've made a decision. I, I think it's so appalling I can't have anything to do with it. But actually, I think if you show an openness to debate and dialogue, you're in business. And one of the things that I want to try and do through the movement for change is make sure that never again does, is the left parties vulnerable to the charge that they're the elitist party. Because that's where I think we really get into trouble. You're being terrific with the questioning, which is nice and crisp, which means that we... And the answers have been too long, I'm sorry. We should, no, 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 no. We, uh, we should, we should get another quicker. couple of rounds in if okay. you keep behaving yourself in, in the same way. Yeah, that's right. An arm up there, right-hand side of the balcony. No, 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 just behind. Um, do you not think that the left is in the mess it is today because it lost its heart and soul by succumbing to the markets? Okay. In the middle. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, how do you think PR in general will play out with your three groups of lost voters and the PR proposition in front of us at the moment? Mm -hmm. Thanks. Right at the back, on the left of the balcony. My question is, what's your comment on the Foreign Office's um, recent efforts in getting the British nationals out of Libya, particularly compared with other countries like France? And what would you have done differently? Will you still the Foreign Secretary? Thank you. <laughs> hang on, hang on. I'm going to take a couple more to diffuse the last one. Um, yeah, okay. I'm interested in hearing a bit more about the, the movement for change. I'm a councillor in Lambeth, and one of the sort of big ideas we've come up with is the idea of a cooperative council to, to put power back into the hands of, of community groups. What I'm interested in is, though, is how we turn what some people might see as a sort of organisational uh, programme into something that's actually about the values and recapturing that idea of the good society uh, away from the Conservatives. And then finally... Yeah. I just want to ask a question on the economy uh, in terms of the argument. It seems like sort of the right seem to have sort of won the argument on the deficit in terms of cutting it. Now, um, short of us going back into recession and them having to sort of backpedal, as uh, as a lot of people on the left are sort of hoping, you know, how can we win the argument if if we if we come out of the recession and you know we go back to two to three percent growth over the next few years? Thanks how sure. do we get our credibility back? Mm -hmm. Look, I'd love to spend quite a lot of time, you know, ruminating about how my successor is making me look sure-footed, sagacious, wise in everything that I uh, uh, did, but I think that would be a bit catty and um, probably not. W what I would say, though, about the... Uh, that's all right, don't worry, I'm not going to be catty and uh, do so, but there is an issue about the worldview. This is why I, what I said about the international dimension is important. Because the real quarrel that I have with the government, whatever the bungles that... Um, that they made, and Douglas Alexander is doing a you know, fantastic job exposing them. I, I don't need to help him on that. But there is a real issue um, about what's the worldview they came to power with. And the worldview was bilateral, not multilateral. And it was basically trade is the uh, commercial diplomacy is the only kind of diplomacy that the world understands. Um, and I think that was deeply, th those two things, those two bases of foreign policy were deeply flawed. And that's where I think um, we've got 
to take it on. It's very difficult in this country to take it on because it leads you straight into Europe. But I think that that's, that's an argument worth trying, worth trying because actually, as Charles was saying about the immigration question, there's a very important European angle to it. It's ditto on energy. Um, and I think it's worth fighting that through. Um, the trouble is we need an agenda for European reform as well as domestic reform. But that's the international one. Um, do I think we've lost our heart and soul by selling out uh, to, to, to markets? No, I don't really. Because, remember, in this country, we're the government that is attacked most of the time for the amount of regulation it did, whether it be on the minimum wage or gender issues, you, you, you name it. And social democrats don't stand for the abolition of the market. They stand for a market economy, not a market society. They stand for markets that are governed by institutions and rules that express human values. And I think we should be people who stand for responsibility that runs from top to bottom of society, and that should apply in the economy as well as in society. And my view of the social market economy is not that you have a social sector that's good and a market sector that's bad. That doesn't work. You have to have a genuine um, set of institutions and rules that govern your market economy in a moral way. And uh, I think that's the way forward. On uh, PR, I'm not a supporter of um, uh, pure proportional representation. I think the alternative vote system, which is not a pure PR system, renders um, transparent the tactical voting that people have to guess at anyway. And I support the AV referendum. I think it allows people to vote tactically without losing their vote or risking losing their vote. And so I think that's a good thing. I wouldn't support a shift to um, PR, pure PR, because I think that would, that would lead to the splintering that is causing such problems um, around Europe. I think for a second chamber, I mean, my real quarrel with the Lib Dems about the constitutional reform is they've poisoned the well of political reform uh, through the way they've gone about this AV referendum. What we should be voting for on May the 6th is our parliament, the Lords and the Commons together, a proportionally elected Lords, fair enough, and then an AV elected Commons, you've got a real political um, change there. On, um, uh, very happy to plug the movement for change, I mean, what Lambeth are doing on Cooperative Council I think is fantastically exciting, actually. And I am personally very, very um, impressed by the... Uh, people are coming through like you who are doing who are count, who are a relatively young age have got huge experience being councillors and making big decisions and trying to make change locally and the key for us those of us who are in the Labour Party remember redistribution of power wealth and opportunity and the first we often forget and that's I think there's a good critique of the government rather than that it was in love with markets that it didn't do enough to redistribute power and I think that's where we should be that's a test that we should be applying of the government that we had um What's the, oh, the, uh, yeah, well, there's a really important fifth question. Um, I think that, uh, number one, um, there's obviously, where are you? Yeah. Uh, the, 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 how will the Tory economic experiment play out? But I think we would be very unwise to become a party that hopes for a recession. I think that's a road to disaster. I don't think that, that's not a good position um, to be in. Secondly, we've got to speak credibly about how we ended up in the current position. Thirdly, we've got to point out that there are alternatives. Unfortunately, the Obama administration in America is pursuing a, an alternative strategy. I mean, it would be ironic that one of the things that may save the British economy is that the Americans are doing a big, big experiment in Keynesian refinancing. Um, but that's part of the uh, argument as well. Um, but we've got, to, we've got to have a credible analysis of what went wrong, as well as uh, credible plans for what to do instead. OK. I think we just have two more, because then we're going to run against Barcelona kickoff time. Um, OK. Now, who... Um, right at the back? 
on the bottom here. And then I'll take one from the top if someone wants to try and engage my attention. Uh, do, you, do you think that um, Labour lost its moral compass over things like the deal in the desert? And will there be a blowback for the left for some years to come from that? I was going to say I'm looking for a woman, but that could be miscon misconstrued. Um, but I am still looking for a woman. Are you one? <laughs> I, haven't got my, I haven't got my glasses. Let's try. Yes, we are. I'm wearing eyeshadow. Um, yeah, he can't see it from what that one down there, obviously. Um, you mentioned earlier that uh, the left is losing the argument. Um, I would say that the right are making terrible arguments and therefore they're taking. So are we just losing the way to make arguments and the platforms on which to make arguments on? I'm referring specifically to Rupert Murdoch and B. Sky B. As Thanks, well. for, thanks very much indeed. Uh, final word, David. Um, <coughs> look, really great questions that people are asking. Um, I mean, I think. Uh, let, let me just spend uh, one minute on, on the uh, Libya thing. Um, Colonel Gaddafi was the prime sponsor, not just of international terrorism in general, but IRA terrorism in particular. The Semtex, the arms that he was sending to the IRA in the 1970s and 1980s was trying to, and sometimes effectively, killing British people on the British mainland. The approach in 2003-04 that led to him renouncing his terrorist support and renouncing weapons of mass destruction, and remember in Libya there were more WMD when the IAEA went in than was expected, that, is a, that was a good deal, not a bad deal. Don't ever get yourself into the position of thinking that somehow Colonel Gaddafi would be being better to his own people if he was sitting in his bunker today with access to terrible weapons. I promise you he wouldn't. He'd be worse, much worse. Right. So don't get in... Uh, I would say very, very strongly that in the, in the aftermath of the Iraq war, with all of its uh, controversies and uh, mistakes and difficulties, the Libyan change from being the prime sponsor of international terrorism to renouncing it was a positive change. Now, there's then the further process of engagement to humanize that society in the way it treats its own people and what role it plays in the wider world. And as we're seeing tragically on our own, uh, on the TV, the engagement strategy has not built civil society quite yet strong enough to overrun the Gaddafi regime, tragically for the uh, people there. But isolation isn't just a dangerous policy in the Gaddafi case in particular, because he'd still have all those WMD. Isolation, although I practiced it and supported it in respect of Burma and North Korea, has not been a singular success. I don't actually say that we should change our policy on uh, Burma and North Korea, but the default position in foreign policy should be, in my view, engagement. So in the case of Iran, where we have strong sanctions on the nuclear program, I strongly support, and I spent a lot of time urging the Americans on this as well before the Obama administration came in, we want engagement with Iran. The thing that the uh, President Ahmadinejad fears the most is engagement. And so 
don't get ourselves into the wrong position. Whatever the LSE inquiry finds, and you, know, you, can, you can go through all that, you can look at what other institutions have done. I, I think it's really wrong to get into a position where you think that somehow, um, or the, the argument somehow is that the, 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 the piece of diplomacy that uh, ended uh, Gaddafi's uh, support of international terrorism was somehow a bad thing. Just in terms of the um, final question about is it the way we make arguments, I mean, that's a, tempting, um, that's a tempting line to go down, but I think that generally form reflects substance. And the left of centre parties have got issues on welfare, on economy, on community, um, for substantive reasons that I tried to describe in my lecture. Now, what we need is sustained engagement on building a positive agenda, because the truth about the 90s was all the governments that came to power had real agendas to prosecute. And someone just said to me before the uh, lecture that they'd been reading uh, Alistair Campbell's, uh, I think it was you, Tony, said, you've, be, you've, uh, you've been reading uh, Alistair's um, diaries, Alistair Campbell's diaries, and the unexpurgated diaries. And uh, Tony made the point that what comes out of it is politicians who actually had a restless sense of how they changed the country. And that's something that is what makes politics worth doing and is actually what politics is really all about. Thanks very much. Thank you very much indeed. says it, thank you for being a terrific audience as well. We have a final word from the LSE in the form of Professor Paul Kelly. Thank you very much. Falls to me as Head of Department of Government and on behalf of British Government at LSE, co-hosts for tonight's event, to thank David for his lecture. It's also a great pleasure. As Tony has said, the relationship between the LSE and Political Quarterly is long-standing and it's also good to see that association renewed. I'm glad that the school and the department have had the opportunity to host this lecture. It's fitting that the LSE is the place where we discuss issues and arguments about renewing contemporary British and European politics. That's what British government at LSE is for. David's posed a challenge to the centre-left and to social democrats to think hard and realistically about where we are. But this is a question that is not the exclusive concern of social democrats and it will require hard thought by all about politics, economics and ideas. But given the school's association with the third way, this is a good time and this is an appropriate place to start thinking about the move beyond the third way and also the search for the moral economy and a good society that David spoke about. And David is an appropriate person to start that debate with us here. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join with me in showing your appreciation for our speaker and for tonight's lecture.